G'day everyone, welcome to Lubrication Experts and today, back by popular demand, is uh, Mr. Andy Wainick. Now, we did a previous episode on calcium sulfonate greases, which was extremely well received. Um, I got a really lot of really good feedback and a lot of demands to get Andy to come back to talk about a whole range of different topics uh, in the grease world. Uh, today, I thought it would be helpful if we focused on... Uh, you know, the types of greases which are certainly dominate the market at the moment by volume, and that's the the lithium greases. But it's worth taking a second look at them because, you know, there's some new developments in the in the lithium grease world. Um, not only that, but it's pretty topical because obviously the, the the price of lithium fluctuated pretty wildly in the in the recent past. So I think it's pretty topical that we do talk about it. Um, so Mr. Andy Wainick, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be back, Ray, and I, I'm sure I echo a lot of people that uh, were very appreciative of, of your podcasts. You're bringing important topics in the area of lubricant, fluid, and greases uh, to a wider audience. Uh, we need to have an influx of talent in this area, and your podcasts are helping to generate that interest. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, okay, let's start with the obvious question, right, which I think would be, if you had to pick all of the metals, right, there's an entire periodic table and you get to pick any metal to make a soap out of, why does lithium win? <laughs> why does it become the multi-purpose grease? Well, uh, to quote Bob Dylan, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. So let's, let's take that wind and let us blow, us blow it all the way back to the year 1942. In my previous podcast, I mentioned that 1942 was a very significant year because that was when the development of highly overbased calcium alkylbenzene sulfonates first began. But 1942 was a banner year for another reason. In 1942, a relatively unknown chemical engineer received five U.S. patents. The name of that relatively unknown chemical engineer was Clarence E. Earl, and those five patents covered in the open literature for the very first time, lubricating greases thickened by lithium soap, specifically lithium stearate. Now, you really can't overestimate the impact of those five patents. But let me give you some examples. Just four years after the Clarence E. Earl patents issued, there were already papers on the evaluation of lithium soap thickened greases being published in the open literature. 27 years after the Clarence E. Earl patents, 43% of all lubricating grease production in the United States and Canada was lithium soap greases. 27 years earlier, it was zero. By the 1990s, that number had increased to over 70%, where it has been ever since. So your question is the correct one. Why did lithium dominate? And the answer, as succinctly as I can put it, has to do with what lithium soap thickened greases were competing against. In order to do that, it's really convenient to divide all the other thickener systems that are out there into two categories. The ones that were available before the 
Clarice Earl patents in 1942 and the ones that developed in subsequent years. So let's talk for the first part about what thickener systems were already in existence in 1942 when Clarice Earl's five lithium stearate thickened grease patents issued. Well, you had hydrous calcium soap thickened greases, also called cup greases. Those are the greases that have two to three percent water as part of a thickener. And when you heat the greases up near the boiling point of water, that tide water evaporates and your thickener structure collapses along with the structure of the grease itself. So clearly that's not a good candidate for a multi-focused grease that's going to do well in a lot of different applications. We had simple aluminum soap thickened greases in 1942. These were made by preformed aluminum stearate and aluminum distearate solids that you dispersed in the base oil and heated up to form the grease. Problems with this grease was it was difficult to get consistent grease structure out of it. Plus the aluminum soap thickened greases had relatively low dropping points. And there were other issues as well. So those were not good candidates for a multi-purpose grease either. Then we had sodium soap thickened greases. Now these greases were kind of interesting in that although the sodium soap thickener is very um, hydrophilic, water loving, it still provided an unusual amount of natural corrosion protection, rust protection. But because the thickener was hydrophilic, it was easily washed out by water contamination. So that made sodium soap greases a poor choice for any kind of a wet application. So that's not a good application, a choice for uh, multi-purpose grease either. <clears throat> well, we had barium soap thickened greases. Well, barium soap is a lot more difficult to disperse in base oil than calcium soaps. As a result, you needed a much higher concentration of the barium soap thickener, upwards of up to 35, 40% sometimes. And although the barium soap greases were very fibrous and gave you a very tenacious film on metal surfaces that was difficult to remove, they, were also they also had poor pumpability and poor mobility, and their dropping points weren't very good either. So that wasn't a good choice. We really only had, in 1942, one high-temperature thickener out there, and it had been introduced about two years before the Clarence Earl patents, and that's calcium complex. Now, some of our viewers that are younger might thought I said calcium sulfonate complex, but I didn't. Calcium complex, which is basically the thickener is a two-component system, calcium stearate and calcium acetate. We'll have a little bit more to say about that in a while, but right now, when they were introduced, it was only a few years until we realized calcium complex greases had a very serious problem, namely age hardening and surface hardening. This was a very serious problem. In fact, some bulk grease handling systems, the grease solidified like concrete and actually the, the bulk handling systems had to be completely removed and replaced because it was like concrete setting up. There was a lot of patent work done trying to fix the age hardening problems of calcium complex greases, but frankly, none of those worked very well. And as a result, calcium complex greases never gained any real traction in the lubricating 
Greece world. And to this day, you're going to be hard pressed to find very much of it around. So in 1942, that was your choices. Now, of course, lithium salt Greece was grew in the ensuing decades. And other thickener systems were also developed in those ensuing decades. So why didn't they displace lithium? Well, let's look at the second class of thickeners, the ones that were developed after the 1942 clearance patents. We had anhydrous calcium soap greases. They were uh, invented uh, and first disclosed in 1952. And they did do a little bit better than the cup greases. They didn't have tie water, but the dropping point was still only about 150 Celsius on a really good day. Uh, still not good enough. Uh, and they, there were other issues. They, they just weren't the best choice for a multipurpose grease. We have aluminum complex thickened greases, a high dropping point grease that was also developed first in 1952. However, there were some problems with aluminum complex greases as well. I'll list only one of them, and that is the fact that aluminum complex thickened greases, although they have reasonably good shear stability at 25 Celsius, every single one of them categorically have horrible shear stability at higher temperatures. You see, the shear stability of, of a grease, like every other chemical and physical property known to man, is a function of temperature. And just because the shear stability of a grease, when you run it at a room temperature 100,000 stroke penetration test or a room temperature standard two hour roll stability test, just because your numbers are pretty good at 25 Celsius, that's no guarantee that they'll be good if you run the shear stability test at a much higher temperature. As it turns out, if you run an aluminum complex grease, and that's any aluminum complex grease, regardless of the base oil, regardless of the additives, regardless of the ratio of the stearic to benzoic acid that you use to balance yield and dropping point, regardless of any of those factors, if you run that aluminum complex grease on that standard two-hour wool stability test at 150 Celsius, the grease will soften typically at 80 to 100 points. And if you run that test for six hours instead of the standard three, you will totally and permanently destroy the thickener system. You'll end up with a Newtonian fluid. And remilling it won't bring it back. That thickener system is totally destroyed. That's true for all aluminum complex greases. Uh, now, there are people that market aluminum complex greases in high temperature applications. But what they, the approach they use is to tell the customers who have auto looping systems to just push huge volumes of the aluminum complex grease through their system so that the residence time of the aluminum complex grease is short enough that it doesn't have time to fall apart and bleed out of the rotating equipment and starve that rotating equipment. In fact, people who, are in, who do tech service work and who deal with aluminum complex greases, I will tell you without even talking with them, the number one customer complaint they're going to have, and I know this from personal experience, with aluminum complex greases is that the aluminum complex grease was used in too hot an application. It turned to soup, ran out of the bearings, and the bearings failed to do the lubricant starvation. Mm. This is a real problem. So aluminum complex greases are not a good choice for a multi-purpose grease either. Barium complex greases were developed in 1947, you know, only a few years after the clearance of the oil patents. 
but they're pretty much the same as simple barium silk greases. In fact, if you look carefully at the chemistry of the simple barium silk greases that were around when Clarence E. Earl's five patents issued in 1942, technically most of them actually were barium complex greases. And the same problems that I mentioned with barium, simple barium soap greases were true for the barium complex greases as well. So they weren't a good choice either. Now, in 1955, two Amico scientists, Eddie Swakon and Cecil Brannan, developed for the first time polyurea greases. And when I worked at Amico years ago, you know, I started developing new patented technology and I have, there were a few old timers there that actually knew Eddie Swaycon and Cecil Brannan. And they were telling me, oh yeah, Wayne, you're developing some new stuff. Yeah, but have you ever heard of Eddie Swaycon? <laughs> I didn't, but I read about him and I found out who Eddie Swaycon was and who Cecil Brannan was as well. But their initial polyurea greases were completely areal polyurea greases, which had better, uh, thermal and oxidative stability because the that pi electron system in the carbon-oxygen double bond of the urea linkages could be spread on both sides through the benzene rings of the aerial groups, providing tremendous oxidative and thermal stability. The base oils they used were silicone oils. That was in 1955 about the only synthetic base oil that was around, and people that know uh, silicone oils know that one of the great things about them is they have fantastic oxidative and thermal stability. So these aerial polyurea greases were a perfect match for the silicone oils that they were developed for. And these greases were used in some very specialty high temperature applications, including the beginnings of what we would today call the aerospace industry, where they're small volume, very severely stressed, where these greases were just perfect, the perfect thickener, with the perfect base oil. But again, as I pointed out in my previous podcast, they use diisocyanase. Now think about this for a minute. You're going to develop a multi-purpose grease, which by definition is going to be made in huge volumes all over the world in multiple plants. That means the thickener system is going to require correspondingly huge volumes of the raw materials. Do you really want to make a huge volume of these greases with a raw material that if you make one handling mistake, you can kill all your grease workers. So not a good choice. So at least with the initial advent of polyurea, that wasn't a good choice for a multi-purpose grease as well. Then of course in 1966, we had Richard McMillan discovering, apparently quite by accident, uh, calcium sulfonate simple greases. But they're tricky to make, and they really were poorly understood then. Plus, they had really bad low temperature mobility problems. So they weren't a good choice either. Well, those are your choices. So the real reason why lithium won was it didn't have a lot to compete with. And it was basically the perfect storm of circumstances. It provided basically a number of good properties that could be easily added on to, and it was it worked and it became it won because it just outcompeted the, the field. Yeah, I mean, I've heard it described as um, 
you know, lithium's not outstanding at anything, but it it's not terrible at anything at the same time. Exactly. So it doesn't have a massive a uh, massive weakness. Um, yep. But but that definitely pro- provides a lot of historical context for why that's the case. So I think it's it's really good for everyone to get a picture of what all the options are, and I mean some of them are, are still options, right? That are available, um, mm-hmm. and there's perfectly good reasons for using some of these greases. But you have to be aware of the the severe limitations of them. Um, now I was actually going to ask about additive packages, but I might just park that uh, question for a moment because. One thing that we've, we've talked a lot about is this idea of complexing, right? So when we went through the history, we talked about, um, you know, there are simple calcium soaps and complex calcium soaps. There are simple, um, you, you know, the, the bariums, for example, there were simple and, and complex versions both before and, and then after 1942. So could you please help explain what is actually, what does complexing actually mean? How would you describe it uh, to, to people so that they can better understand what the difference is between a simple soap and a complex soap. Well, I'll give you a pithy introduction and then, and then explain it. Uh, complexing will mean one of two different things, depending on whether you add a, ask a chemist or whether you ask a marketing person. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, you're, you're right. When you have a, uh, when you have soap thickened greases, by definition, you have a positively charged metal cation and you have a long chain fatty acid carboxylic anion. And the two together are a soap salt or a metal soap thickener. So lithium stearate is a lithium cation and stearate anion, both with one charge, positive charge, negative one charge. So they come together, you have lithium stearate. Similarly, lithium 12 hydroxy stearate. Calcium, of course, has a plus two charge. So calcium stearate would be a calcium cation and two negatively charged, one charge stearate anions, calcium stearate. And that would be a simple soap salt thickener. Now, For complex soaps, you have what I just described, but you have another salt. And that other salt is usually the same metal cation, but it's going to be a different anion. It's going to be a different, the anion of a different acid. It can either be the anion of a monocarboxylic acid that's different from the long chain fatty acid that the simple soap would have, or it can be a dicarboxylic acid, typically of a shorter chain. And we'll get more into that in a, in a, in a while. It can, in some, in some very early cases, it can be even the uh, metal salts of non-organic acids, things like orthophosphoric acid, for instance. Uh, but that's really, in chemistry, that's that's compositionally what a complex soap is. Now, uh, as I mentioned, some of the very earliest complex soaps weren't what we would expect today. When you talk to somebody today, well, what's the big difference functionally between lithium complex and simple lithium soap? Or what's the difference between calcium complex and a simple calcium soap? 
they're going to say, well, yeah, the complex thickener has a higher dropping point. And normally today, when you think of soap thickened greases in the complex version versus the simple soap, you typically think the improved dropping point in the complex greases. And that's typically true. Is some of the earliest complex work that wasn't the case. Um, some of the earliest complex soap stuff um, works in the literature, they were improving things like texture or oil bleed or shear stability. And dropping points didn't seem to be improved. But when they started finding that certain complexing soaps would dramatically improve the dropping point, and since dropping point was believed, rightly or wrongly, to be an indication of possible capability to perform at higher temperatures, well, then all of a sudden, everybody was on that bandwagon. And then the business of finding complex thickened greases was all about improving the dropping point. Uh, now, what does complex mean with regard to the structure? Well, to do that, I want to take a little bit of a step back and do a little bit about some inorganic chemistry. There is this area, an important area of inorganic chemistry called coordination compounds or coordination complexes. They were pioneered in the late 19, uh, 19, the late 19th century, 1890s actually, by a Swiss chemist named Alfred Werner. In fact, Werner's work resulted in 1913 in him receiving the Nobel Prize for his work in inorganic chemistry, complex chemistry. There's been a lot of great books on the subject. I'll show you my favorite. This little book right here, the Solo and Johnson Coordination Chemistry, it is a gem. And what Werner talked about was that metal ions, of course, they have their, their what he called their primary uh, valence, and then they have their secondary valence. Today, we would call that oxidation number and coordination mm -hmm. number. Uh, for instance, cobalt, uh, cobalt anions with a plus three charge. Plus three, it has a valence of three, but it also has a secondary valence, a coordination number of six. And it can have molecule, neutral molecules or anions surrounding it in fixed points in space, two here, two here, and two on top and bottom, the points of an octahedron. And that's called a coordination compound. So that's what a coordination compound is. And those are called true complexes. Now, can grease complex thickeners have a true coordination complex structure? Well, maybe a couple of them, calcium complex and barium complex. In 1959, at the world, the Fifth World Petroleum Con Congress, and then the, the year later in the NLGI spokesman, some very important work was done evaluating calcium complex greases. Those are the ones that have really bad age hardening and they never gain any traction, but people were interested in them. And this work showed by X-ray diffraction that in a calcium complex grease, you did not see the X-ray diffraction pattern of calcium stearate. You did not see the X-ray diffraction pattern of calcium acetate, which are the two components. Instead, you saw something completely different that was neither. And so they said, ah, we formed a brand new material, which is a true complex. 
And it might actually be in the solid state something akin to a Werner coordination complex. Later on, they showed the same thing was true for baryon complex creases using X-ray diffraction studies. So, yes, those two thickener systems might actually form what a good inorganic chemist might say is, yeah, maybe you've got a real complex structure there. However, lithium complex, not so much. Lithium complex is not a true complex at all. It is a co-crystallized material, and I'll talk about that in just a second further. Then we have, in the 1980s, something called polyurea complex. Polyurea complex isn't a true complex, and it's not even co-crystallized. It's polyurea that, in its final step, has powdered micron-sized calcium carbonate and perhaps micron-sized calcium acetate added, thoroughly mixed into the polyurea thickener system, and then milled into the thicker structure as well. And that's entirely a marketing term. It doesn't really improve the dropping point of the grease substantially. It does dramatically improve the EP anti-wear. And for marketing terms, the company that pioneered this uh, called it polyurea complex. And that terminology exists to this very day. G'day everyone, just to quickly jump in here, this podcast is obviously not sponsored, so if you want to support the channel, then head over to the website lubrication.expert. I'm building a platform to make the job of a lubrication expert that much easier. There's a range of application-based training modules, as well as certificate preparation, including ICML's MLA1, MLT1, VIM, and VPR. MLA2 and MLA3 are coming later this year, as well as hopefully CLS. There are tools for lubricant and viscosity selection, and I'm starting to run bi-weekly Zoom meetings where we can all just catch up and share our experiences as lubricant professionals. Best of all, while a range of certification courses are in the order of a thousand US dollars each, all of this is available for a hundred US dollars a month. So maybe just to quickly jump in there, because I know a lot of people, now I've done a whole video on why grease compatibility charts are misleading, but on those grease compatibility charts, you'll often see two different columns for polyurea. One of them is polyurea and the other one is shear stable polyurea. Is, is that what's being referred to when you talk about uh, the complexing? No. Okay. And let me, let, me just, let me just say one thing right now. I've seen those same articles. They say, well, shear stable polyurea is compatible with everything. And older non-shear stable polyurea that's where the in shear that's where the structural instability exists it's not that simple it's not that simple um a good friend of mine chuck Coe, did a paper a number of years ago he got an award for it deservedly so on the name the title i love the title shear uh, grease compatibility charts can be dangerous and they can be I do not put any stock in grease compatibility charts. You know, I'll give you the perfect example. A lot of these grease compatibility charts show that lithium-soaked greases and calcium-soaked greases are incompatible, incompatible. You know perfectly well that one of the big and successful lines of lubricating greases is mixed lithium-calcium soap. If they're so incompatible, then why is it lithium calcium soap greases so good? So no, it's not that simple. Great, great. But now getting back to the the issue of lithium complex greases, because we're going to be talking about that more. Um, 
lithium complex creases are co-crystallized. With lithium complex thickeners, you have lithium stearate, or more often lithium 12 hydroxy stearate. That's the long chain thickener component, the lithium salt. And then you have the dilithium salt of a shorter chain, C9 or C10 usually, fatty acid, sebacic acid, or um, azelaic acid. And these are C9 or C10 straight chain carbon organic hydrocarbons with a carboxylic acid group on the end. They're neutralized with lithium hydroxide. So now you have the dilithium salt and that's mixed with the lithium stearate or usually lithium 12 hydroxy stearate. And when you make them appropriately, and we'll talk about this, you get an intimate co-crystallization of the dilithium salt of the shorter chain dicarboxylic fatty acid and the monolithium salt of the longer chain monocarboxylic acid. And to give you an idea, lithium stearate has a melting point of 220 Celsius. Lithium 12 hydroxy stearate has a melting point of 200 Celsius. Well, lithium azelaic, dilithium azelaic, dilithium uh, sebicate, and sometimes adipic acid was used in some very early lithium complex crease patterns, as we'll show, that all three of those dilithium salts have melting points greater than 400 Celsius. So when you co-crystallize those dilithium salts intimately enough, with the monolithium salts of the long chain fatty acid, those very high melting points of the dilithium salts translate to the overall thickener structure, raise the dropping point up. And that's why lithium complex creases have so much better or higher dropping points than simple lithium salt creases. That is awesome. So um, for everyone listening, I mean, you always hear this term complex uh, thrown around a lot. And, and like Andy said, it's you know, effectively become a, a marketing term um, to, to say, you know, high performance and therefore higher price. But now we have an actual, uh, you know, a deep technical explanation for uh, for why that's the case. And that, that's why I love in these fact, podcasts because we get the, the yeah, actual in, answers. In fact, in fact, Art Polishak, Art Polishak in his classic book, which I love the title of, A Brief, A Brief <laughs> History of Lubricating Greases, he tells a funny story. One of the pioneers in the very early lithium complex grease, high dropping point lithium complex creases, called him up. They were good friends. And they said, hey, our company is going to start marketing a lithium complex grease. And Polishuk talks to his friend and says, come on, you and I both know there's no such thing as a true lithium complex. He goes, I said, look, he said, Art, you and I both know that. But my marketing department thinks it's a good marketing term, so we're going with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. And for anyone who's just listening to the audio version of this, the uh, the book that Andy was holding up, The Brief History of Lubricating Creases, looks like it was about 2,000 pages long. So, um, But definitely pick up a copy if you are uh, if you have a deep interest in this, in this subject. Absolutely. It's a classic by now. Yeah. Now... Um, I think that's that's awesome because we've gotten a really good picture for the history behind uh, the 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 reason why lithium kind of came to the fore. Um, now we've got a little bit more background on exactly what does it mean to have a simple grease versus a, a complex grease. Now, 
the obvious other additions that go into the greases. It's not just the thickener. It's, uh, let's say, for example, the additive package. So with, with lubricating oils, we know it's, it's base oil plus additives. And in very broad terms, when you go to a grease, it's base oil plus additive plus thickener. So we, we don't want to overlook uh, the ad pack. Um, so what is it, um, you know, what would, a, what would an additive package in a, a lithium grease uh, look like? Great question. And yeah, it's the perfect time to talk about it. Well, lithium, you know, some thickener systems do more than holy oil. For instance, I talked about calcium sulfonate-based greases last time. They provide really good EP anti-wear. They provide incredible corrosion protection. Well, not so much with lithium. If you have a simple lithium soap or lithium complex base grease, which is basically base oil, thickener, and nothing else, well, lithium soap isn't going to antagonize any of the other of the functional properties you might want to build in, such as EP anti-wear, corrosion protection, oxidation inhibition, metal deactivation, copper passivating. It's not going to mess any of those properties up, but it's not going to contribute to them either. It's kind of neutral. So you're going to need to build those functional properties in. When the Clarence E. Earl patents issued in 1942, we didn't have nearly as much additive technology as we do now. We had some, uh, and over the years, things developed. By the 1960s, we had some sulfur and phosphorus-type chemistries. Um, we had lead-based chemistry. There were some lead additives that were pretty good at EP anti-wear, and they were actually being used. But we had some unfortunate things happen, at least in the United States in the 1960s, that resulted in lead starting to be taken out of pretty much everything. Uh, paint, initially, but also lubricants, especially fluid lubricants. Gear oils... Back until, until the 1960s, they were very heavily based on lead chemistry, lead naphthenate specifically, and a, a more refined form of lead chemistry as well, organo lead. But when lead started to be taken out, people started looking more closely at sulfur-phosphorus chemistry. And industrial gear oils were basically being reformulated with first, second, third generation sulfur-phosphorus added packages for, for industrial euros, these added packages found their way into uh, greases as well, and especially into lithium greases. And a lot of the simple lithium and early lithium complex greases in the 1970s and the 1980s, a lot of them actually used either the identical sulfur phosphorus added packages that were used in gear oils or modified versions of them. Uh, for, for extreme pressure anti-wear, and a lot of these additive packages also provided built-in corrosion protection and oxidation inhibition. Uh, the additives that can, you normally think of that can be good as antioxidants will work well in lithium greases, and a lot of corrosion inhibitors are going to work well as well. The one additives, uh, and polymer additives as well. The, the one class of additive that I would say you probably want to steer clear of in high concentrations and I don't know why anybody would use these anyway, but additives that are high detergency, if you use too much of it, it's going to so emulsify your thickener as to basically turn your grease into an oil. 
and you don't want that to happen. So, but again, I don't know of any obvious scenario where, where one would want to do that. I know of somebody who used that to a small extent. We're going to talk about that in a while, but that's using a half a percent or less. But if you use large quantities of the detergent and the lithium grease, you're probably going to regret it. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that gives us a really uh, uh, fantastic uh, picture. Now we've got, now we're sort of starting to put the grease together, right? So we've already talked about the thickener. And uh, we've, we've talked about the additives, but just to return back to the thickener, actually, um, one thing that's that's often kind of said when we are explaining how greases work to end users, we often kind of say that the the thickener just it just holds the base oil, but it's the base oil that does the actual lubricating. And like you've already alluded to, we we already know that that's not the case. So in the case of you know. Uh, the calcium sulfonate greases, as we talked about in the last pod- podcast, the actual thickener itself has, you know, extremely good, you know, EP style properties. Now, you did mention that lithium has maybe less capacity, right? Is a little bit more neutral. But in what way does the lithium soap impact uh, lubrication? Great question. And yes, in terms of baseline functional properties. The lithium soap or lithium complex soap is more or less neutral, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have an impact. It does. And in fact, it has an impact in two ways. Uh, the lithium soap or lithium complex soap, let's take lithium simple soap right now, uh, and you can extrapolate that to lithium complex. It has a very polar ionic head, the lithium cation which on a periodic table, if you look at the periodic table, lithium is right at the very top of column 1A. It's the smallest plus one charge cation there is, so it's got a very high charge density, and it's going to have a natural affinity to polarizable metal surfaces. And then you have that long fatty tail, which can extend into the base oil. Kind of sounds like a surface-active material. And in fact, lithium salt will have an affinity for metal surfaces. Well, how do your performance additives work? They work by going to the surface. So the lithium soap thickener has the potential of competing for metal surface with the additives. But it can do something else as well. For the additives to get to the metal surface, it has to diffuse to the metal surface. And you have that three-dimensional thickener network with all that polarity. And those polar functional additives are trying to work their way through and they're kind of being dragged by the polarity of the polar thickener system. And as a result, you can get thickener additive interactions in the bulk phase of of the grease, which impedes what we call the diffusivity of the additives, which is important. And I can demonstrate this very easily. For those people in the audience who have actually worked in both fluid lubricants formulation and grease formulation, you may have noticed something. If you make an industrial gear oil, let's say an ISO 320, ISO 460, or an ISO 680, those are the three common, most common ISO single disc rates for industrial gear oils, and you want to inhibit it to pass the standard D665A distilled water rust test for, for 
or uh, industrial year oil. And let's say you're going to use a, one of the most common rust inhibitors out there, barium dimethyl naphthalene sulfonate. I won't mention the brand names, but everybody knows who makes it. You'll know that 0.1 to 0.2% is all you need to pass D665A in a typical paraffinic base oil. Now, if you have a number two grease, you're going to need 1 to 2% of the barium dinolonaphylene sulfonate to pass the corresponding distilled water bearing rust test with a lubricating grease. In other words, you need about 10 times as much. Why? It's because of that thickener. That thickener is impeding the same rust inhibitor to do its job. And that's, by the way, true for corrosion inhibitors as well. Mm. And to a lesser extent, it can even be true of oxidation inhibitors, although not as much for oxidation inhibitors as for uh, because the oxidation inhibitor doesn't go to the metal surface to do its job. But for adenins that do their job going to the metal surface, that thickener system has impeded the diffusivity of the adenin to the point where relative to a base oil that has the same, to a fluid lubricant that has the same base oil you need a lot more of that same additive in order to do its job. So although the lithium salt is more or less neutral with regard to the inherent functionality of the performance of that grease in, in terms of its various performance capabilities, it's not neutral with regard to how the additives will perform once you put them in there. And that's an important factor. And this, this effect, of course, can uh, affect different base oils. For instance, one of the most difficult reasons in order to build in high levels of EP anti-wear is aluminum complex. Why is that? Because you have a thickener system that's got three times the positive charge on a cation, and that has a really, really inhibiting effect on the EP anti-wear additives that are trying to get to the metal surface to do their job. So as a result, for people that have done a lot of work formulating, you know, aluminum complex thickened greases, you know, it's more of a challenge to get a 620 or an 800 well point on the four ball EP well test in an aluminum complex grease compared to say a simple lithium salt thickened grease. And that's, and that's why it comes to, it, it all boils down to this effect of the, of the ionic thickener system. That is fascinating and explains so much. <laughs> uh, oh, awesome. Awesome. Okay. So now we've kind of almost built out the entire picture of the grease. And of course, the last thing that we haven't really talked about is the base oil. So we, we've talked about the thickener chemistry. We've talked about the additive. We've talked about the way that they, those two interact. And finally, we, we have the base oil. And this is kind of a, an area where I feel, although everyone says it's the base oil that does the lubricating, everyone then overlooks the, the kind of base oil that's used because in, in my experience anyway the way that these uh, greases are marketed it's it's thickener first right they'll say it's a nlgi2 lithium complex grease and then everything else just you, you know it falls the way it does uh, no one ever mentions what kind of base oil is being used or or you know most of the time they'll just say it's an ep grease right when it comes to the additives so could you please help us understand what base oils would go into uh, a lithium or a lithium complex grease? Sure. Um, 
most of the base oils that we, we know about, um, petroleum-based and synthetics, will work just fine in lithium soap thickened greases. Um, the general rule, and you know, anybody that's taken the NLGI grease course, even the basic one, you will know that all other things being equal, you typically get a better thickener yield in a naphthenic oil compared to a paraffinic oil. The compromise is shear stability might not be as good and oil bleed tends to go up. Uh, again, all of things being equal. But the base oil is the solvent, as I pointed out in the last, uh, well, the last podcast. But the good news is, as I also pointed out, when you're making a lithium soap grease, you're doing a simple acid-based chemistry. So, you know, you don't have to worry about competing reactions. You don't have to worry about side reactions. You don't have to worry about slamming the reaction because it doesn't want to go to completion. If you do the chemistry right, you're going to get the lithium soap that you want, and you're not going to get anything else. So if you do it right in the right base oil, and you have the right equipment, you'll get the dispersion of your thickener, and you'll get a grease structure. And the, the, the yield of that grease structure and some of the other base properties will be determined in part by how you manufacture it, even the equipment you use, but the base oil will also be a factor. But you can make them. You can make it in um, uh, you can make it in paraffinic oils, naphthenic oils, not a problem. PAO, not a problem. Um, blends of some of the various base oils, such as PAO, alkylated naphthalene, you can do that. Um, now, get back to compatibility. You know, you look at your grease compatibility chart. And, you, and you, you see lithium's compatible with some other thickener's type, and you go, oh, well, you know, I can mix these two together. So you've got a, a lithium soap grease in a paraffinic group one base oil, and you have this other thickener that's supposed to be compatible with it, and what you didn't bother to check was the fact that that's in a uh, mineral oil insoluble polyalkylene glycol pad. So you mix the greases together, and you spend the next month trying to fix your equipment. <laughs> so, yeah. so no, it, it's, you know, you have that, you have that situation to deal with. And again, please read my friend Chuck Coe's paper on, on uh, um, those compatibility charts, because as he said, they are dangerous, but, but yes, you can make uh, lithium soap greases in most of the base oils that are out there. If you do it the right way. And, and the real reason is because this of the simplicity of the chemistry that is used to form the thickener system. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Now, just a, a quick note on, on the compatibility thing. So firstly, yes, absolutely. And that is a situation that I've faced a number of times. Um, the When it comes to compatibility, um, for anyone listening who is on the user side, um, you know, where you've got a critical application, get physical compatibility testing done now there is also, um, let's say, uh, there are some misnomers about how that testing is done as well, because you know, when you look in the ASTM standards, uh, there is kind of like a part one, which everyone does, and then there is a part two, which no one does. Uh, and I've explained that a couple of times in a video that I did on uh, grease compatibility charts. So um, be sure to check that out, as well as the uh, Chuck Co article, which I'll try and uh, link in the description to this video as well. Now. 
This has been just an awesome conversation. And anytime I get to talk to Andy, uh, I feel like I learn more in the space of about half an hour than I have in a, a couple of years in the industry. Um, we're going to actually pause this discussion here because there is a part two that will come with this, which is all about um, lithium grease manufacturing and some uh, interesting new developments that have happened in that sort of space, um, which is affecting both uh, manufacturing as well as uh, formulation as well. So we are, I'm going to make sure that that comes very soon after this podcast goes out. Um, but as always, I'd like to thank um, Andy for sharing his incredible uh, wealth of knowledge with us because you know, the takeaways from this is, is hugely applicable to anyone that's using uh, lithium greases, which is basically everyone in the industry. So, uh, Andy, thank you so so much for your time. and we'll, we'll talk again soon. My pleasure, Rafe. Looking forward to it. <laughs>